0: G'day, Welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org, or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Well, please pray with me. Uh, if you've got your Bible open, Joel three is that really the place to keep it open to at least for now. <coughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have spoken and revealed yourself in this world. Your word is a mighty thing, changing things that are dead to things that are alive, changing things that are not into things that are. And, Father, we pray that you would awaken in us a greater knowledge of you, but a greater worship of you by the power of your spirit and your word in our lives. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, are are we Christians so heavenly-minded that we're not much earthly good? Are we Christians so heavenly-minded... Uh, that we really know earthly good? Do we have our heads, you know, so consumed with the heavenly and with the, the far off and uh, other worldly existence and life, things like salvation and recreation and all that kind of stuff that we hold back from being much help down here on planet earth? Is that us, that we're so much about being holy that we kind of never get around to being holistic? The prophet Joel lived 2,500 years ago or thereabouts, it's a little bit hard to date him actually, Uh, round about in the 6th century BC in Judah, that's in southern Israel, Uh, he was a man and yet he was God's prophet to the people at the time and perhaps you could imagine his lot at the time taking him to task, something like this, Joel we've just had a locust plague mate, we have just had a locust plague ravage our land. We're living on the edge here, Joel. So can you just let up for five minutes, could you? Just let up for five minutes about this day of the Lord business and give us a hand. We've got barns that need to be rebuilt. We've got food that needs to be found from somewhere. I mean, it's not like heaven's going to fix that stuff down here for us, Joel. That's for us to do. So come on and muck in, would you? you can imagine that. You're so heavenly minded, you're just not much earthly good. And of course, you know, for us today, what would it be for the Christians in this world? Civil wars in Africa, uh, food supply for 7 billion people and more uh, into the future, ever-growing slums around some of the world's biggest cities, even family breakdown or access to education here in the West. There, There are plenty of problems to go around, aren't there? and if us Christians don't muck in, then what hope have we got of fixing this place? You can see where the claim might come, are we so heavenly minded that we're just not of much earthly use? Well, today, in our final little foray into Joel's prophecy, I'm just going to tackle what I see as half of that question. We're going to have to leave the other half of it for another time, Because the thing is, Joel is absolutely heavenly minded. I think we've seen that over these weeks, absolutely heavenly minded. If by that we mean he is consumed by the stuff of God, he's consumed by thought of the future of these big eternal realities, that's absolutely Joel in his prophecy. And does that mean that he just never gets around to helping with the practical stuff? Well I don't know actually, it's a little bit hard to tell hasn't it been over these four weeks as we've been reading through Joel, I don't know if he's picked up a hammer and nails and got stuck into things but what we do know, you know we're going to have to leave that side of things for another time but what we do know is this, unlike some, Joel believed that a heavenly hope had far more going for it than a mere earthly fix. their problems. A heavenly hope had far more going for it than an earthly fix and it's that that I would like us to weigh very carefully today. Could it be that what is broken in our world, what is wrong in our world and what sort of stumps us and we don't quite know what to do with, could it be that what is broken in our world ultimately cannot be fixed by us? Oh, I'm not saying don't try, don't make efforts, don't try and do things that help people, But could it be that ultimately what is broken in this world cannot be fixed by us down here and it can't be fixed by us mucking in together and collaborating and the rest and that a heavenly hope is far more earthly good than we could ever muster by sheer willpower, by sheer collaboration, by our own grit. So welcome back to the day of the Lord in Joel, the day of the Lord, which I'm calling God's great gift of heavenly horror, I think, in chapter three of of Joel. I wonder if you make it out to be that as we go through. It should cause us to ask questions about just how broken this world is. It should give us pause for thought. You know, do I actually believe that we've got answers or could find answers to the biggest questions looming for us as a race on this planet, it should prompt a sober thought. You know, well, if we don't have the answers or can't find the answers, then might a heavenly hope turn out to be very good news for our earthly needs down here? So, please dive in with me now in uh, Joel's Gospel as we... Joel's... it's not... it is a Gospel but it's not a gospel, Joel's prophecy. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. Dive in with me to Joel's prophecy as we plunge back these 2,500 years, two and a half thousand years into his world. I've got three points. I'd like to give them to you up front so that you know where we're going. Firstly, the day of the Lord speaks good news over our terror. Secondly, the day of the Lord speaks terrible news for our good. And lastly, the day of the Lord gathers a good world around our great God. We'll get to those in turn. You'll be able to keep up, no doubt. Firstly, the day of the Lord speaks good news over our terror. Now, I'm about to read from Joel chapter 3 verse 1, can I just notice this this one thing before we read? By chapter 3, and this is especially for you if you've been here for these past few weeks, uh, by chapter 3 now, you'll notice we're not talking about locusts anymore. Okay, so you need to get your head back in this a very agricultural kind of society, and they have been ravaged by locusts and plague after plague that has put them on the edge. But by chapter three, we're not talking about them anymore. They've slipped off the radar. And what we've shifted to is something far darker and far deeper. But probably, I think, our focus has fallen on wounds that heaven, can I put it this way, that heaven would need to minister to if it was going to be much earthly good for these people. The background for this section is from around about 80 odd years earlier. Babylon conquered their parents and their grandparents and uh, just all the war crimes that went with that. Joel chapter 3, bringing heavenly good news to this earthly bad. Joel chapter 3, verse 1, in those days, he's talking about the day of the Lord, prophesying, looking forward to this day of the Lord. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, it's the Lord speaking, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's a weird name, Jehoshaphat just means the Lord judges or the Lord will judge. Uh, Bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and there I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance my people Israel for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes, they sold girls for wine that they might drink. Now what have you against me O Tyre and Sidon and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I've done? If you're paying me back, I'll swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you've done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far away from their homeland. I don't know if you've read a a little novel by a bloke called Jonathan Safran Foer not Jonathan Safran, a different guy, um, Jonathan Safran Foer, his book, Everything is Illuminated. It's this very, very bleak story. Uh, it's, it's a fiction, but one of those kind of historical fiction kind of works. It's this very, very bleak story about a Polish town of Jews in and after the war. And at one point, the main character in the story meets this woman, Lister, years later, and she's living in squalor like absolute poverty, a mess. But in her grief and with her memories, it's like she can't even see the circumstances that she's living in, can't even see how bad it is immediately right around her at the time and why? Well, because her memories absolutely consume her and they torment her her and they blind her even to basic needs. She has no peace, you see, about her lost baby and her town that has been wiped out and I think there's a similar thing going on in Joel. (coughs) Never mind the locusts, never mind that we don't know where our meals are going to come from, there are these deeper and darker wounds that God's people carried with them and you see God would name them and God would speak to them and I think that's some of the horror lurking beneath this passage. Leslie Allen on this passage, he captures the bitterness of it, I think, especially that moving verse, verse 3. The life of a Judean was held so cheap that a boy's slave was sold as payment for the use of a prostitute and a girl slave was exchanged for wine. In the impromptu market, doubtless set up by camp followers trading in such commodities, the hope of Judah's destiny, he's talking about the children, was degraded into a currency for debauchery and drunkenness. The sensual revelry of conquering soldiers is depicted with horror from the standpoint of the losing side. The the phrase, he's talking about the last phrase in verse 3, the phrase, that they might drink is the final bitter touch. It epitomises the callous disregard for the future mothers of the chosen people, that they were rated as worth no more than a moment's gratification. Judean bystanders doubtless shook impotent fists beneath their cloaks, but Yahweh, that's God's name, but Yahweh is to step in, an exact compensation, champion of these war victims, He will ensure that the swaggering perpetrators are brought to justice. The day of the Lord spoke good news over their terror. It spoke to their terror. And if I can put it this way, it spoke from their terror. Do you notice how God, He's not an observer in these verses. He's not an onlooker, you know, disinterested analyst. Look at verses 2 and 3, I will enter into judgment against them concerning what? Concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land, they cast lots for my people. Do you see? It's like God is standing at the head of them with all of them behind standing, as it were, in his shadow, in his, beneath his wings, to mix metaphors. And so Joel has forgotten the locusts so as to bring God's heavenly help to wounds that his people had never found the heal for, never found the cure for, memories that earthly fixes could never erase. God spoke to those and God sided with them and God cared about them. And secondly, now the day of the Lord speaks terrible news for our good. Firstly, speaks good news over our terrors, but the day of the Lord speaks terrible news for our good. The heavy, heavy, heavenly stuff continues. Let's read on. This this day means good news for God's people. It does, but it means, but it brings evil to a terrible end. Let's read from verse 6, we'll take it back up from there. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far away from their homeland. See, I'm going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them and I'll return on your own heads what you have done. I'll sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war. Rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack, beat your plough shares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weaklings say, I'm strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord." Let the nations be roused, let them advance in the valley of Jehoshaphat for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle for the harvest is right. Come trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for His people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Um, I feel I should just make a, quick, a couple of quick comments uh, on a verse that might bring some of us, I'm sure has brought some of us a, a little unstuck, even just as I've read it there and as John read it to us before. Is it right, here is the conundrum, is it right for God to, verse 8, uh, how does it put it there? Uh, Let me digress with this for a second, hopefully it will help some of us and really unlock the passage for all of us. Uh, End of verse 7, I will return on your own heads what you've done. That's just eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, sounds alright. And then we realise what that would look like. I will return on your own heads what you've done. Verse 8, I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. See why that's a troublesome verse? for some of us. Two things that I'd like us to weigh up, just in terms of understanding what is being promised here, understanding kind of the symbolic language, the language that uh, Joel is using here. First, please notice, it's not the children, is it, who are the focus here, particularly in these verses. That's not who God's beef is with. We are rightly, in our context, sensitive about children and about their treatment and about integrity surrounding them. God's beef though in this passage is with their parents, isn't it? It's kind of eye for an eye stuff directed at the adult perpetrators of the crimes that we've just read about. So that's on the one hand, the beef is with the parents, uh, the adults. So second, do you reckon that this is actual, like literal, just like it says, word for word, judgment of God? Is he describing time and place actions or is it figurative? Because I want to say, I reckon it's figurative, actually. And it might be a, a metaphor that, that I would shudder to use, it might be a full-on metaphor indeed, but just like the verses that come after that about battle and weapons made from farmers, you know, pruning hooks or whatever it is, weaklings showing up to fight, oh, I'm strong, um, i i put it to you, I, I think it's figurative And that war metaphor that's there, what is that talking about? What is that trying to get at? It's God's calling for this battle to end all battles. It's going to be God versus evil. Every single enemy of God, every evil is going to be there and He's going to absolutely, He's beckoning them, you come and I'm going to judge you and I'm going to hold you to account. It's this pervasive, expansive, once and for all kind of treatment of evil that we have there in that figurative description of war. And in a similar way, I think this, uh, this selling sons and daughters uh, business, this comeuppance that these uh, war criminals are going to receive, in a sense, I think it's figurative as well, in this full-on metaphor. Uh, and what is it figurative for? Well, children sold far away. I think it means God is annihilating any aspiration for future, for a future, for happiness into the future, for the enemies of God, for life into the future, do you see? I think that's what it's probably a symbol, what it's figurative for and I grant you that it is a full-on metaphor but I think it's saying something like, here comes a battle where earth's evil will lose its place in the future of our world where evil, do you get that, will lose its place in the future of our world. It will have no future. Evil will have no future in our world. Imagine that. Imagine a world where evil itself, where the enemies of God themselves won't have a place in the future world of God. Tim Keller, he says, look, in the end, How on earth do you describe hell or heaven for that matter? How do you describe stuff like that or the judgment of God? You've got to do it with pictures. It is so otherworldly. It is so hard to conceive of. You've got to do it with pictures. Uh, Here's what he says. He says, all descriptions and depictions of heaven and hell in the Bible are symbolic and metaphorical. Each metaphor suggests one aspect of the experience of hell. For example, fire tells us of the disintegration, while darkness tells us of the isolation. Having said that, doesn't at all imply that heaven and hell themselves are metaphors. They're very much realities. The Bible clearly proposes that heaven and hell are actual realities, but also indicates that all language about them is elusive, metaphorical and partial. Here's the thought. The day of the Lord speaks terrible news for our good. The heavenly help speaks terrible news to the greatest problems in our earthly circumstance. And finally, the day of the Lord gathers a good world around a great God. The day of the Lord gathers a good world around a great God. Read with me from verse 16 sort of the flip side to that, the positive side to that, the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem, the earth and the sky will tremble but the Lord will be a refuge for His people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you'll know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill, Jerusalem will be holy, never again will foreigners invade her, In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias, but Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste because of the violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations, their blood guilt, which I haven't pardoned, I will pardon. The Lord dwells in Zion. So, are we Christians so heavenly minded that we're just of no earthly good, of no earthly use? Are we Christians so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good? Well, armed with this day of the Lord idea, I reckon Joel would want to say something like this. I reckon he'd want to say what do you mean too heavenly minded? What do you mean too heavenly minded? If heavenly minded means a hope where God ministers to our deepest wounds and our darkest memories and our secret pains, you know, if heavenly minded means God subbing in for us and saying no these are my people and I'll fight for them. If heavenly-minded means a world where evil dies, this finer and bitter death, leaving only what is good and beautiful and a future for our world without those things. And if heavenly-minded means this very earthly world gathered around God and figuratively flowing with milk and, 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 uh, and, and wine and water, verse 18... I don't know, it sounds like a pretty earthly good to me. Here's what it's not though, what it's not, it's not a naive expectation that one day us humans will figure it out on our own, it's not that and it's not a a painting of us as just happy families, as if we down here in humanity, as if we've just got to figure out just a little bit more of how to get along. No, the problem's worse than that, the hole is deeper than that. And it's not an excuse to opt out of doing some of the hard stuff and the hard work in life. But as I said, that's a sermon for another time. Look, to conclude, I wonder, could I put an image before you of Jesus to kind of bring this Day of the Lord stuff and uh, indeed the whole prophecy of Joel to a bit of a close for us? So uh, the image is from Revelation 5 uh, and it's one where Jesus, here's this lion who fights or has fought at the head of his people, trying to stood at the, at the forefront of his people, doing only what he could do, standing for them, they're my people, I'm fighting for them and yet he is a lamb, in fact he is a killed lamb and a slaughtered lamb and the thought is the Lord who dwells in Zion, you know kind of Joel 3 kind of passage, is really the Lord who fought evil to the death for us in our place. He is our Lord and He fought our fight and He lives among a people who long for His day. Can I uh, present that image before you? So turn with me to Revelation 5 if you would and then we'll pray to close. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1... Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What's that about? The scroll seems to be the salvation plan of God and opening it it isn't just reading about it, finding out about it, it is bringing it into effect, making it happen and there's just no one who can do it. Who's able to bring the kind of heavenly help that our world needs? Who can bring that about? who can open the scroll? And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept, John tells us, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll on its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they'll reign on the earth. I'll just skip down. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Christ comes from heaven and he's exactly the help that our earth needs. How about we pray? Lord God in heaven, our God on whom we pin our highest hopes and our only enduring optimism for this world. God, have mercy on your people. Have mercy on your people the world over today, we ask, please. Father, we think of those for whom the kidnapping of children and the enslavement of loved ones, that is no mere symbol in their lives, but a sick and a sad reality, a grief that they will carry to their graves. Lord, have mercy on your children, we ask, those in Iraq and Syria, those in Nigeria, those in parts of China, those in North Korea, Father God, God among your people by your spirit now and in fullness one day, may we wait here in reverent fear, carrying with us the hope and the healing that comes from knowing you as a righteous judge and a loving father, knowing you as the lion and the lamb. Lord God, may we, your people, may we lay aside pettiness and grudge-bearing the things that hold us apart and worsen the wounds. And may we lay aside those things, not by a mere force of will, but by a quiet confidence in the forgiveness that we've received and the solace that we've found in the death of the Lamb for us. Father, may we take up the cause of justice where we may. For those that we have the power to help, and may it affect our wallets and our energies and our time and our prayers. But may we ever keep the day of the Lord before our eyes, heaven's help for our earth. May you be our hope, for your hope alone will never grow dim and your light alone will never be darkness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.